Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is episode 11 of Shrapnel, when the lads continue to go from strength to strength. If you're listening, if you like, if you enjoy, please rate, review, recommend, tell everybody. We need you guys to, to spread it via word of mouth or on your social media channels. Every little tweet or Facebook post or whatever it is you're using yourself helps. Thanks for that. It's also a brilliant time to join us. It's the beginning of the month, so if you pay your 550 now, you get access to our entire back catalogue all of our podcasts in one private members-only feed and access as quickly as I can turn them around and produce them. So there's no waiting, no delays, and you get exclusives like some of the ones that don't go out on the public feed and get to come along to our live Sunday shows, which are always the most fun of the week. There's lots and lots and lots there on patreon.com forward slash tortoise Click the link, have a look, and see if there's a level that you're happy to support this project. Thanks for listening, and I won't delay you any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. Before this week's episode, I'd like to pay a simple tribute to Baroness May Blood. May sadly passed away last week, and so many people in Northern Ireland and beyond will miss her presence in the political and social landscape here. May came from very humble beginnings and ended up as a Baroness in the House of Lords, but I'm sure that's not what she'd want to be remembered for because May's best work was done on the ground with the people of the Shankle. May was a fierce proponent of integrated education. She always gave very generously of her time when I wanted to needle her for information on Shankle history, particularly the pre-Troubles era. May said it as it is, um, and her autobiography, obviously, was called Watch My Lips, I'm Speaking, and that was May all over. There's going to be a lot of people out there this week who'll miss May, and particularly, I think it's important to pay tribute to the fact that May worked for all the communities in Northern Ireland, and she wasn't just a woman of, of great stature and strength. She was just a person of great stra- stature and strength. But I think her role as a woman and her role in helping form the Women's Coalition, being a trade unionist when it wasn't the done thing for women to be involved in trade unionism, is particularly relevant given that this week's episode is with Danielle Roberts. Now, The episode with Danielle was recorded back in June, but a lot of the issues that Danielle will talk about are very relevant to the legacy that May has left behind. And what we, a Shrapnel podcast, would advocate, what Danielle advocates, and what May would have advocated is that more women speak up, believe that your participation in life, whether you don't believe that it's political, it's always political, you have the strength to get involved, change the narrative, and break the impasse that, that we find ourselves in, in in Northern Ireland. So, a shrapnel we would like to hear from more women. We've had a, a, a good number of women so far. But myself and Sam are focused on hearing more Protestant, Unionist, Loyalist women. And sadly, these voices are 
greatly underrepresented in the mainstream. Um, and we would like to provide some sort of outlet for, for those voices to be heard. So forgive me for sort of ambling here, but the key point is we need to hear more of these voices. Shrapnel will facilitate those. So if you feel like you have a story, and I have no doubt there are hundreds out there, please come along and talk to myself and Sam. We are a safe space. And again, I hope you take something from this episode this week with Danielle Roberts. And I'd just like to, again, say thank you to Danielle for all the fantastic work she does. And also, I'd just like to, again, pay tribute to Mae Blood and just extend my sympathy to the people who knew her best. And I hope you enjoy this week's Shrapnel. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. My name is Gareth Movena and I'm joined by my co-host Sam McElwain. Tonight we are joined by Danielle Roberts, who is chair of Reclaim the Agenda. Danielle is also a PhD researcher at the University of Ulster. Her research focuses on barriers to participation by women from the Protestant, Unionist and Loyalist community. Danielle, thank you for joining us. It's a real honour to have you on tonight. Yes, thanks for having me. Hi, Danielle. Hello. Um, so I, I think, I think Gareth has a, a, a barrage of questions there for you. So I'll take the first bit <laughs> because I know he's got a sore throat and we want to give him a bit of, a bit of relief. Uh, and I'm just going to ask the question that's going to probably be all encompassing. So we'll come back to different points on it. Um, just in my observation that when you walk into the chamber at the minute in Stormont, on the right hand side is the Nationalist Republican sort of side and they're young and they're female. And on the left hand side of the chamber, it's the unionist side and they're older and they're male. Um, what what is preventing and I, and I don't aim this at the parties um, because there are female candidates put forward but what is the barriers for the unionist population voting for women within the politics um, I don't think it is a barrier in people voting um, yeah there are candidates put forward by unionist parties but not in the same um, percentage as Nationalist Republican parties or other parties. Um, I'm not exactly sure where Alliance sit in the chamber in terms of left and right, but if you look at where they're sitting, there's quite a few young women in, in their bit as well now after the last election. Um, so it's not an issue of, of, uh, women unionist candidates not being elected. Um, I think it goes back to not being selected. Um, now, obviously, being selected for a seat doesn't mean that you're automatically going to get in. Um, but if you're not selected in a winnable seat, then you have no chance. Um, I think it's quite disappointing this time around looking at the UUP who did stand at a slate of women candidates and none of them were returned. There are some particulars in that. If we look at their only um, incumbent MLA, uh, Rosemary Barton from the last time round, she was standing in uh, in a, a runoff really with the former party leader, and and he ended up getting elected at her expense. So, you know, decisions like that um, sort of make me wonder uh, if you're really focusing on trying to increase your representation of of more diverse candidates than than older men, um, then 
why are you standing somebody against your only incumbent woman? Uh, so I think looking at the UP in particular, you know, they had two young lesbian women standing for them, which is, you know, quite groundbreaking. We only had our first out MLAs in 2017, and that was through co-option, not, um, not election. This time around, we have got elected out MLAs, but they're all gay men. Um, there aren't any out women. Um, so I think there's, um, there, there is an issue from selection. Um, more so than election, because uh, in general, women candidates perform proportionately um, to the percentage of um, the amount that they're selected. So the conversion rate is generally proportionate or actually in previous elections, women have outperformed. So I don't think it is an issue with the electorate. Yeah, because this this podcast was actually the, the topic of conversation at our kitchen table tonight. It was along the lines of what am I going to ask? How do how do we open this conversation? Um, and and that was raised by my wife. Are are the females being stood in the right areas? Uh, are there enough of them? I mean, is it a token gesture that we're putting females forward, knowing that they're not going to win? I mean, um, Julianne Core in North Belfast had a hard enough mission. When you look at the MLAs that were sitting, and when Nicola Mallon's not returned. You know there's an issue mm-hmm. up there with how the vote is. So yes, it's great to stand, Julianne. It, it ticks a lot of boxes for the party. But really, was it they were standing or to get her elected, or was it they were just ticking those boxes? Well, I suppose that's her home base, really. So she has a proven track record of of winning votes in that constituency. Um, and we're not that far off council elections. So I think. Possibly part of it is strategic and raising profile for the the run up to the council elections, but um, I'm in East Antrim, and you know, arguably, there are safe uh, a number of safe seats in this constituency. You know, we had a bit of a shake up this time with the Lions taking a second seat, um, but the DUP or the UP, neither of them ran a woman in East Antrim, um, and East Antrim remains the only constituency that has never had a woman MLA. Um, North Antrim when he got their first one this time round with um, Alliance so um, yeah whenever you look at at safe seats um, although arguably how much uh, with this you know yellow wave or yellow surge or whatever they're calling it um, you know there was a few seats that maybe were thought to be safe that that ended up not being but um, yeah maybe more of a chance of getting in in East Antrim than, than North Belfast or certainly West Belfast. I suppose from self, Danielle, uh, I'd like to go back to you know how, how you became interested in taking this on as a PhD topic. What what drove you to do this research? Um. Well, my research doesn't just look at formal politics; it looks at um, politics more broadly. So, um, I look at feminist activism as well in the women's movement more broadly. So. Uh, I am from a PUL background and I am a feminist. And while that might sound like an introduction to a standard routine, it's not. Uh, it is possible to be both. Um, so I suppose there's a lot of my own interest in it. It's something that I would have noticed is that there certainly seems to be fewer 
PL women um, vocally feminist, or at least you know, in the, the early 2010s when I started getting involved in activism, there were. I think it has shifted quite a bit now. Um, I've been engaged in politics for, you know, since I did a politics A level and made that decision to, you know, be interested um, and did law and politics undergrad. And it's a, an area I've always been interested in. Um, and then as my own political views have developed, uh, you know, there wasn't really a, a party that fitted both sides. Um, and I think that's something that has come out of my research is a lot of politically active young women um, in particular. Um, so I guess by young, I'm being quite broad as well, probably under 30, um, so younger than me, um, who are finding it difficult to reconcile being a unionist and being a feminist um, and prioritising their feminist um, ideology over their their unionism. Um, so choosing to go to Alliance or Green or even people for profit or labour alternative or the more the, the smaller parties. Um, so that or just I suppose the route that I've taken is not to engage with formal politics. Um, I'm not a member of any party. I do activism and um, I'm lucky enough to be in a day job now where I'm able to lobby as well um, through organisations like Reclaim the Agenda and Women's Policy Group. We have um, the ear of politicians from time to time and we're able to give evidence to committees and put in written responses but that's my engagement with formal politics. It's from the outside rather than being part of a party. Um, so yeah, I suppose it is quite like I'm the same demographic as the the women who are the participants in the research. Uh, so there's a bit of self reflection on it. Yeah, and uh, have you found it difficult to get people to talk, or has there been barriers to women participating in your research? I think one of the main issue not getting people to talk, but quite often they'll start off by saying, "I don't know anything about politics." Um, so, um, the research had two elements. Um, I did interviews with women who were active in, um, the women's movement or feminist groups who were from a PL background. Some of them would still consider themselves unionist or loyalist and some of them wouldn't. Um, but they were very much brought up in a, a PEL background and then the other the other half was focus groups with different groups of women. So I had a, a group of young women in particular who were all engaged in student union politics. And that's probably the one that's been the most, I don't know, disheartened isn't the word because it's a mixed bag. But, um, you know, that's this, this group of really keen young women who are all switched on like really ended campaigns at the time around equal marriage, about abortion law reform, about you know tuition fees, um, but then feeling that politics, as informal politics, wasn't for them, so not making that transition, um, and then also some of the experiences that some of them had had when they tried to be involved in formal politics. One of them was from a 
a loyalist housing estate and had been leafleting for a, a left wing party and her granny got a knock at the door telling her she needed to stop. Um and to hear somebody ten years younger than me express that was not something that I expected to come across. So that is something that's come up more than I, I thought it would. Um so like I'm lucky in that I'm involved in a lot of these groups and have relationships with women who are working in women's centres and and different organisations. So those relationships meant I was able to to do the research and find the participants. Um, But yeah, I think the main issue was this initial politics. I don't know anything about politics. And then they would sit and tell you about going to Parades Commission meeting and challenging the Parades Commission and being at like the the camp at Tredell and it's like the, just not making this connection of that is being politically active because they see it as voting or being elected and that's it. And how much how much of the research is pointed towards what actually happens online uh, with with women from the PUL community that sort of raise their heads above the parapet? Yeah, so most of my fieldwork was conducted before Brexit. Um, which I think is kind of a maybe a line that you can draw where there was um, quite a lot of backlash against women, both you know, pro and anti Remain, um, and the fallout of the of that and around the protocol. Um, you know, we've seen people get into very heated discussions on Twitter and whenever colleagues in the Women's Policy Group give evidence to the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, um, you know, they had a, an onslaught of, of online abuse. Um, and then similarly, I know people like Stacey Graham have had big backlashes on Twitter as well. Um, most of what was spoken about with my participants was more around family arguments um and being careful sort of self-censoring themselves um that was probably too many words of the same there in a row but um you know what I mean (laughs) um so they were picking their words and deciding not to post maybe a new story about abortion law reform because they didn't want to get into an argument so people seemed to be the the women that I was speaking to seemed more concerned about um the reception or the arguments they might have with family and friends rather than a public attack. Um, but I don't know. It's not something I looked at specifically. Um, I know Juliana Monteverde and uh, Victoria McCollum have a have an edited collection out looking at um, social media and women's experiences online. Um, kind of in a post Trump uh, Twitter world. Um, so that could be somewhere to go to for, for that issue in particular. Because yeah, I'm just thinking, I mean, we've talked about um, the issues you've described there, about people not wanting to post stories or um, challenge the narratives that their families have and the, the ingrained beliefs. Um, I suppose what I'm thinking of here, does the reinforcement of politics on ethno-national lines here sort of reinforce these traditional gender lines, particularly in the PUL community? Is that a big issue? Yeah, I think so. Um, that's something that came out 
and kind of overlapped with church as well. Um, and the kind of social conservatism within church communities. Um, so not everybody that I spoke to was religious or was brought up in church, but I would say probably about a third of them were in families that would have been quite religious. And that was definitely mentioned as a, a kind of a, a way that they were taught about women's place and that, you know, women don't preach and don't um, uh, do the the leadership things. They make the tea and do the flowers. And so that was brought up by participants in um, one way of how they learned about traditional sort of gender roles. Um, I think most of the people I was speaking to then had kind of resisted or rejected that, but it is something that came up. And uh, like looking back, not even that far, whenever you have like Nelson McCausland saying um, there's no ordinary decent women involved in something because, you know, there's no women from the mother's union. Um, it's all, you know, women from trade unions or whatever, and they're not ordinary decent women. Um, or even more recently, Arlene Foster being told her most important job is being as a, you know, a wife, mother and daughter rather than being first minister. Um, it's not uh, unusual to see these kind of, this valorization of a, like kind of a homemaker, um, yeah, that sort of that sort of particular type of woman. Um, so yeah, your your feminist agitator isn't really gonna fit into that mold. And is is this passive role particular to the PEL community, or have you noticed it across the board? I don't think it's just for the PEL community. Um, one of the participants had done some work with women from ethnic minority backgrounds and she was saying you know, a lot of this is the same. Um, in fact, in her opinion, it, we had sort of moved along and she had said about how in some of the households she worked with, it would be, you know, the man was fed first and things like that, which are very kind of, I suppose, 1950s or that sort of um, so yeah, I don't think it's just um, PEL communities, um, but I think looking at um, political representation and um, and the way that uh, unionist women are spoken about, um, I think it is more more prevalent in PEL um, communities than in. Um, Catholic nationalist Republican ones, um, even things like murals. You know, the only woman you're going to see in a mural really is the Queen. Um, whereas, you know, you might see Winifred Carney or, um, you know, other uh, historical women represented. Um, if you're on the the Falls rather than the Shankill or Rathcool. Um so I think there is that. Uh, legacy of the the conflict as well, and that women were less active in um, loyalist paramilitary groups, or were less visible, even if not less active. Um, that's something that's come up a bit um, around women 
being seen to be like, you know, running safe houses or doing first aid or that sort of thing rather than directly involved in in violence. Um, obviously, there's high profile examples of women being involved in violence and, um, you know, there, there were loyalist women prisoners as well, but not to the same level. Um, one of the participants um, spoke about that. She had been involved in a kind of doing messages sort of role, um, I think is how she put it. Uh, and she said, but if people wanted to be active, they could just join the police or join the army. So you were able to be lawfully involved in something. Um, that was her interpretation um, of why there was fewer women involved in in um, loyalist paramilitaries. But I think then seeing how that then translated into the peace process, um, you know, there weren't the same like women ex-combatants on the loyalist side then to be involved in the peace process who they weren't as visible and didn't have as much as much clout um so there has been some work i can't remember the name of the author now but there has been some work on um the different experiences of loyalist and republican women prisoners um which i cite in my research but i can't remember who it is now um but yeah, that's something that the way that they were treated differently in the communities, rather than being you know, put up on a mural, it was more being ostracized or being, you know, you, you weren't the, the right sort of woman, that that idea again. I suppose, yeah, that's that's really interesting because looking back at the early period of the Troubles and even through the 1980s, you would have had oh well, the wives of loyalist prisoners um, and also the wives of Republican prisoners coming together to protested say the supergrass trials and, and that type of thing but there is something particularly gendered about the um notion of loyalist women um even going back to some of the research i did on the uvf and you know in the uvf headquarters there are pictures of fallen volunteers who are women a lot and i remember asking somebody about that and he just said oh yeah the nurses and i mean that's a throwback to Carson, you know, that, but again, that's, that's a gendered ideal. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be that specifically women are boxed in the certain, um, certain roles. So you have like the nurses, she say the people who are, um, I mean, one of the other, um, respondents I had told me about, um, somebody hiding weapons in a pram. So even mm-hmm. that's gendered to a certain extent. Yeah. So, what what I what I wonder in the, in the, in the present day is, and you've talked about it there with people um, who are involved with feminism, who would put their feminism above their unionism. So, how much have you found that ethno nationalism obscures progressive social attitudes, particularly in the loyalist working class? Well, I suppose there's a lot of theoretical discussions and then real life um so the the theory side of things would be because the focus is on the ethno-national divide and how our politics is that zero sum one side or the other um everything else gets gets relegated to second place and i think that is true in some ways you know it's we need to sort out the green and orange first before we look at women or before we look at 
a sexual orientation strategy or where we look at a racial equality strategy, we need to sort out the, the big problem first. Um, so I think that has been um, a barrier in that it's it's shaped the political agenda and it's prioritised um, ethno-nationalism over anything else. And partly the way that Stormont's even set up, you know, it, it reifies ethno-nationalism and it's how people get power. It's how people get ministerial seats, um, you know, and how, how votes are conducted. Um, then in more of the the kind of actual material reality. Uh, like if you look at the work that women's centres are doing, it doesn't matter what somebody's ethno-national background is. The main thing they're combating is poverty. Um, it's poverty and it's violence. And those are the main the main issues that they're focusing on. Um, so whether that's through providing childcare or providing education in the, communi- in the community so that people can get better jobs or you know, domestic abuse support, um, or things like the the rape crisis centre, which is only pretty recently um, reopened as a phone line. Um, it's not even a physical premises, um, but you know, Women's Support Network is one of the main partners in in running that. So, um, I think we've got so much immediate need, um, which is only going to get more pertinent as the cost of living crisis deepens um that people and women in particular are are organizing around those issues rather than um around ethno-national issues um but women aren't a homogenous group and pl women aren't a homogenous group you know there's pl women who are very vocal about the protocol and wanting to scrap the protocol and that's their that's their particular political focus so it's not it's not a one-size-fits-all um but i think the the political agenda setting is still very much focused on ethno-national and can be brought down by the focus on ethno-national at the expense of other issues which you know bread and butter issues or whatever you want to call them um before you even get on to more social justice issues you know there's conversations we're not even having because um, there's no space in the in the timetable for them. I, I just want to go back to the point you made earlier about the start of the peace process and the lack of sort of female representation and clout. I mean, I've seen some of your work on the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. They mm-hmm. had clout at that point. Um, and yeah. I, for one, was quite excited to see how that was developing. So I was brought up in a... In, in a in a matriarchy, uh, my, my family, my mum, my aunts run the family and I've been brought up that they are the centre. Um, so to see that this this party came forward and we're talking sense at that point, um, but then to be stifled mm-hmm. out of it. And especially when we had a female Secretary of State as well that was dealing with it, who, make no bones about it, took no crap. Um, I, I was quite happy to see that we had strong female voices at the table. Mm. But unfortunately, I think that voice is missing at the moment. Yeah, well, like the Women's Coalition are amazing. Like I've written a few um, blogs about them and one is as part of the Lindenhall Library Extraordinary Women Project. So yeah, I think they're extraordinary women. Um, but they're not loyalist or unionist. 
um, you know, their focus is on was on equality and inclusion and human rights. Um, I don't see those as completely separate from also being a unionist. But um, yeah, no, those women were the things that they were able to deliver um, you know, far beyond um, the capacity that they had. Um, I one of my favourite anecdotes is about them sharing a, a menthol cigarette in the ladies' loose with um, the Secretary of State and, and negotiating, putting clauses in. Um, and people like Monica McWilliams and Abela Kilmarie will talk about that and those anecdotes. And I hope they get, uh, I know Monica has a book, but yeah, I hope there's even more um, work done on the Women's Coalition because there's so many anecdotes that are just fascinating. Um and the few that I have come across, um, yeah, by them like shimmying up lampposts to retreat posters, <laughs> to, to repurpose them and um, getting stuck in traffic to deliver their election nomination forms. So having to get out of the car and run around the corner and my blood being there to like stop them as they got to the corner to say there's a whole barrage of press around the corner, brush your hair, that sort of thing. Um yeah, it's um, and then how they were treated, being mooed at, and um, again that being accused of you know not being decent women of Ulster, um, you know, and they were so strategic in how they picked their representatives, making sure they had a mixture of not just Catholic and Protestant backgrounds, but also you know community worker and academic and different class backgrounds and. The way they presented spokespeople on issues, um, you know, like having a doctor speak on health issues. Um, yeah, they were really strategic. Some of the things they did, like and that they had the guts to do, like going to a prison porta cabin to meet with loyalist prisoners to to make sure they were on side and also advocating for Sinn Fein to be included in talks. Um you know, really, really creative and, um, yeah, extraordinary uh, stuff. But the focus, their focus wasn't on ethno-national issues. Their focus was, well, on getting a deal done um, and trying to include um, human rights in it. And I think if we look at a lot of the things that are being recommended now, you know, if we went back and revisited the original Belfast Good Friday Agreement, and in particular the mechanisms advocated by the Women's Coalition, you know, like they proportional representation is something they advocated for. It's not the system that they wanted. So maybe revising that. The Civic Forum, like that doesn't just doesn't exist anymore. Now there's chat about having citizens' assemblies on particular issues, but the Civic Forum. The mechanism is right there in the Belfast Gay Friday Agreement. Just put it back in place. So, yeah, I think they got a lot of things right, um, you know, 20 plus years ago. Um, and people are coming up with them now as new ideas. Yeah, they almost bordered on competent politics at that point, didn't they? <laughs> Something that maybe, as you say, you take the ethno-nationalist sort of point of view out of it and how we should be doing politics in this country. Um, we always focus on the orange and green, as you've stated, and... That clouds everything else. Um, maybe we should have just appointed them leaders and let them run the country um, because it would have been far better than what we've got at the moment. Absolutely. 
Well, that seems to be a good good one to finish on, Sam. Um, I don't know, Danielle, do you have any other comments you want to make? or uh, Just for PL women listening, you probably are politically active. If you're you know, watching the news and giving off about what they're doing at Stormont, then there'll be, there'll be a campaign out there to change it. So check out Reclaim the Agenda. Um, we campaign on six key themes around um, ending poverty, ending violence and, and others. Um, and you'll find like-minded women um, who are maybe also not seeing themselves as politically active, but are, are trying to make some change. So, yeah. If there's any political leaders that happen to be listening to this podcast at, at one point or another, what advice would you give them on how to how to change their party from the inside to be more reflective? Um, I think selection is a big thing. So if we look at how the introduction of gender quotas in the South has made a change to how women are, are being selected. I mean, quotas aren't Quotas can be got around and yeah, if you choose your women and stand them in constituents where they've no chance, then yeah, what's the point? So um, potentially a list system or something like that would be better. But I think really looking at who they're selecting, but also planning and, you know, people, candidates need media training. They need um, to be exposed to new political um machinery and how it works um so there needs to be development within parties and um also things like a women's network or you know we've got the women's caucus at stormont now um which is a cross-party um body um but yeah things like that like mentoring um and then one of the major barriers for political engagement is cost um both both time and money um if somebody's you know working um working two jobs make ends meet and also has two kids to put to bed like they've got no time to be politically active so try and um try and accommodate people um so it doesn't uh, so it doesn't cost them to be involved. Um, you know, simple things like having food at meetings or organising meetings at times that suit different groups of people. Um, yeah, and then um, I think some of the kind of code of conduct things as well. Um, you know. I, I suppose that's normally across parties rather than within parties, at least publicly. Um, but one of my participants had shared that she was um, she was the treasurer of her local um, party branch, constituency branch. And um, so she'd have been given a, a finance report to the, the meeting and somebody um, basically said dear oh but it's time to go make the tea um so and this is again somebody more than five years younger than me or somebody in their in their early 20s at the time um so that kind of culture as well um needs to be addressed by parties so whether that's around education um but it's certainly about 
doing something about it when things like that happen. Um, and obviously there's there are more serious things that happen as well within parties. Um, but um, yeah, I think that that culture as well um, and trying to make sure that you're an inclusive place, not only for, for women, but, you know, we had what, two, I think, minority candidates at the last election, um, one for PVP, one independent. Um, we had, we did have a decent number of LGBT candidates. You know, disabilities isn't monitored um, and not all disabilities are visible. So um, you're making sure things are accessible as well. Um, yeah, so there's there's lots of um, lots of different things to consider. Um, and so it's not just more women that we need. We need uh, an, an electorate or uh, a government that's more reflective of society. Yeah, and I think what you're saying there, I was recently at a, at a conference where this was brought up about diversity. And again, not just along gender, but along sexuality, along disability. And it showed that even during the pandemic, um, companies who were more diverse, especially at the senior level, were more resistant to the impact of COVID on that company. They, they thought better on their feet. They thought from different angles. They brought a lot of different life experiences, et cetera, et cetera. And those companies were far more resistant. So within the commercial world, that has been recognized. I think the political world could probably mm-hmm. do the same, with the same lessons being taught. But yeah. I think I think what we've covered tonight is, is eye-opening in, in, in one way, but I think it reinforces what me and Gareth have been, been thinking and I'm hoping people actually listen to what you're saying absolutely yeah so, thank you Daniel thank you very much. really appreciate yeah. that yes thanks a lot okay good night okay.